One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program. Hello everyone and welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show where we demonstrate that everything, simply everything you could possibly think of, has its own history. Like rockets, tomato ketchup and races. Oh, I'd love to do the history of tomato ketchup and chilli sauce and (laughs) and pickle. However, that is to digress as ever because we will be following the links in our minds as we come across them explaining how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, that the history of windows is in fact all about the English Reformation? Or that the history of cats is in fact all about the French Revolution? The man not sitting opposite me, because we're social distancing in lockdown, he will help pilot us through this wonderful historical world. He is one of the country's leading professors of history. It's Professor Extraordinaire James Daybell. Hi, James. Hello, Sam. And the man not sitting opposite me because we are again in lockdown. There is homeschooling going on. He is helping me co-pilot this episode. It's the famous historical adventurer himself, Dr. Sam Willis, off of the telly. Hello, hello everyone. Sam. Hello, hello, hello. Uh, this is another episode of our, our special homeschooling series. It's for kids and interested adults, and we enjoy them very much. In each episode, we take a subject that I bet you don't think has a history. We go on to prove that it does, and not only that it has a history, but actually that it's very, very important indeed. And today we're going to be doing the history of backstabbers, which in our version here is all about the Bolsheviks and the rise of Stalin. But before we reveal that connection, we're going to think a little bit about how else you might do the history of backstabbers. James, what have you got? Oh, well, the Tudor period is full of backstabbing. You just think about all the exciting political developments there, factions falling in and out of each other, people stabbing each other metaphorically and literally physically uh, in the back. Think about the rise of Anne Boleyn and the fallout that happened when she fell from power and many of those courtiers who were caught up in that. You could also think about backstabbers, of course, in terms of the assassination of Caesar. Um, Think about what happened to him and how he was attacked by a a group of senators in the Senate 
uh, on the Ides of March, the, the 15th of March, 44 BC, he was stabbed 23 times, quite literally stabbed in the back and also in the neck and all over his body. In fact, actually, I think, James, only one of his uh, one of the wounds was fatal. Only one went into the heart or the lungs and the rest of them weren't. Uh, nonetheless, he was uh, he was very much stabbed in the back. And you might think about what's going on here. It's actually really interesting because um, if you think about what his last words were, the best known example of it was uh, it, it's the et tu brute, the Latin phrase. And that actually comes from William Shakespeare's play Julius Caesar, written in 1599. Uh, whether he actually said that or not is, of course, a very different question for historians to look into. Um, if you think about what his final words were, Suetonius, he was an author writing at the time, says that Caesar said nothing at all as he died. Um, others said that Caesar's last words were, um, you too, child. Um, and Plutarch also reports that Caesar said nothing. So it's very likely indeed that Caesar did say nothing. But, you know, was he properly stabbed in the back in the terms of, of betrayal, in terms of a friend stabbing him in the back? This is quite interesting because he was known as Brutus was stabbing him in the back. But actually, uh, Caesar and Brutus didn't have a particularly close relationship. There's an entire fascinating history here. And in the end, if you actually look into it, uh, the attack of Brutus on Caesar is actually uh, far more predictable and understandable than it being uh, misunderstood um, something difficult to get your head around with a friend betraying another friend. So that's a very good one we could do, James, as well. There's also a very famous, uh, it's actually called the stab in the back myth to do with the First World War. And this is all to do with what, why Germany lost the First World War. And the stab in the back myth, and this circulated after the war in, in right wing circles in Germany. And the belief here is that the Germans didn't lose the First World War on the battlefield, but were instead betrayed. They were stabbed in the back on the home front by civilians and specifically by Jews. And so this belief of them being stabbed in the back is actually all wrapped up in anti-Semitism. So there you are. Those are different ways you could actually look into the history of backstabbers, James. It makes me want to do all three of those. It make me too, Sam. But where we're going now is we're we're talking about the Bolsheviks and the rise of Stalin. Now, I, I want to set the scene for you here. Now, the Bolsheviks are the majority faction of the Russian Social Democratic Party. They're the people who seize power in Russia in the October Revolution of 1917. They take over Russia and they replace what was the provisional government that had over, overthrown the Tsarist regime. Now, their leader, uh, Vladimir Ilyich Lenin, has been in power since 1917. He leads the Bolsheviks to power, creates Soviet Russia. So first of all, we see the Russian Soviet Republic established as a separate socialist state. And then what we have is a period of bloody civil war between the Bolshevik Red Army and anti-Bolshevik forces who form the White Guard. So there's very sort of violent uh, unrest uh, and Bolshevik supporters and workers and peasants who support them uh, are, are executed during the White Terror. The Russian army then expands, helps local Bolsheviks take power, establishes what are called Soviets. These are local government bodies. They repress political opponents through a, something known as the Red Terror. So then by 1922, 
the Bolsheviks emerge victorious. They form the Soviet Union, which is the unification of the Russian, Transcaucasian, Ukrainian and Belarusian republics, which turns the Russian Empire into the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. In other words, the USSR. So effectively, civil war is over. Bolsheviks have consolidated and established their power. They've introduced something called the New Economic Policy, which Lenin introduced, which is a partial return to free market and private enterprise and results in a period of economic recovery. So at this point then, in 1922, Russia has been transformed by an iconic leader in the guise of Lenin, who's one of the leading political figures of the 20th century, a revolutionary thinker, mastermind of this takeover of power from 1917. He's a strong man. He's politically astute. He's actually a really ruthless individual. You know, there are all sorts of sufferings that are going on during the period of the revolution, the war and famine. And but he's a very, very strong man, mercilessly crushing opposition. Now, what happens is in 1922, he is thinking about what's going to happen after his death. In 1918, he's he survives an assassination attempt. He's severely wounded and he suffers a series of strokes, and he's worried about what's going to take over. He dies on the 24th of January 1924, but before this, he's written something called his Last Testament, which is known as Lenin's Testament, and it's the name given to a document dictated by him in the last weeks of 1922, the first week or so of 1923, and in it, he outlines what he wants uh, to propose as the structures of Soviet governing bodies and how they might change. And he's worried about the... He's worried about the Bolshevik leaders that survive him and the split that he imagines will be developing in the party leadership between Trotsky on one side and Stalin on the other. And I just want to read you an extract of this, because he explicitly criticises Stalin and Trotsky in this. And I quote, Comrade Stalin, having become Secretary General, has unlimited authority concentrated in his hands, and I am not sure whether he will always be capable of using that authority with sufficient caution. Comrade Trotsky, on the other hand, as his struggle against the CC. Now, the CC stands for Central Committee here, the Central Committee of the Bolsheviks, on the question of the People's Commissariat of Communications, has already proved is distinguished not only by outstanding ability. He is personally perhaps the most capable man in the present CC, but he has displayed excessive self-assurance and shown excessive preoccupation with the purely administrative side of the work. These two qualities of the two outstanding leaders of the present CC can inadvertently lead to a split, and if our party does not take steps to avert this, the split may come unexpectedly. 
So there's some sort of there's real criticism of those two there, which you could interpret as stabbing them in the back. But actually, wait for this. Lenin feels that Stalin has more power than he can handle and may be incredibly dangerous if he took over uh, from Lenin. And in a postscript, he wrote this about Stalin, recommending his removal from his position as general secretary of the party. And this really is backstabbing. Stalin, he writes, is too coarse and this defect, although quite tolerable in our midst and in dealing among us communists, becomes intolerable in a secretary-general. That is why I suggest that the comrades think about a way of removing Stalin from that post and appointing another man in his stead, who, in all other respects, differs from comrade Stalin in having only one advantage, that of being a more tolerant, more loyal, more polite and more considerate to the comrades, less capricious, etc. This circumstance may appear to be a negligible detail, but I think that from the standpoint of safeguards against a split and from the standpoint of what I wrote above about the relationship between Stalin and Trotsky, it is not a minor detail, but it is a detail which can assume decisive importance. So there we are. Lenin is dead. We have this piece of paper here, this testament that sets out a sort of map for what should happen. But what happens next, Sam? It's fascinating, isn't it? I, I do love this idea of of Lenin just before he goes, completely ruining everyone's chances of succeeding him. And what happens is that this testament's actually put to one side. Um, it's sort of roundly ignored by everyone. It's kept private. What happens is that the primary contenders for power um, decide to share power. There's a, there's a sort of sense of a show of unity, I suppose, but it's actually an illusion. And while this show of unity is going on, what's happening is that everyone's, every one of them is plotting to um, dominate the party, to stab the other contenders in the back, to make sure that they come up on top. So Lenin dies and it turns into a long and a very, very troubled um, struggle for power with a great deal of backstabbing. The first one you need to really know about and think about is Trotsky. He's the most left wing of these contenders. He was born in 1879 uh, into a, a Jewish farming family in the Ukraine. He's very, very clever. He's talented. He's he's ambitious, um, a very skilled university student. And he's also played a huge part in the uh, in the October Revolution. Um, this, you know, rising up against the Tsar. Uh, he spends quite a significant amount of time abroad um, from 1905, but then comes back and um, it, he becomes a, a Bolshevik and he becomes Lenin's right-hand man. And, and it's Lenin and, and Trotsky working together that actually plot and plan the October Revolution. He then becomes the Commissar for War. He creates the Red Armies. The army, um, he's an inspirational speaker. So the key thing you need to think about him is he's a clever, good speaker, and he's actually the man who runs the army. Um, very, very important person indeed, very charismatic. The key thing about his belief is he wants to promote a worldwide revolution. So there you are, you've got, you've got Trotsky on the left wing. Now, in the centre are a number of different people, but the one I want to talk about is a chap called Bukharin. 
Um, he's he's a lot younger than either Trotsky or Stalin. He's born into a family of teachers. Um, he is also uh, someone who's played a significant role during the October Revolution, helping the Bolsheviks seize power. Um, Lenin liked him. He described described him as the Communist Party's golden boy. He was a brilliant thinker. He was a political writer. And that this the link between thinking and also writing is what makes him so powerful. Because he becomes the uh, the editor of Pravda, which is the party's most important political newspaper. So for all of you history students out there, you'll realise that controlling newspapers is very, very important. Essentially, he controls the media of the time. And then we've got Stalin. So Trotsky on the left, Bukharin in the right, and uh, sorry, Bukharin in the centre, and then Stalin on the right. Stalin's the same age as Trotsky, but a very, very different man. He's he's grown up in poverty. He's had a very tough childhood. His father was a shoemaker and an alcoholic. Uh, was often very violent. Stalin's a really interesting character. Um, he, he actually is frequently arrested as a young man. He's exiled to Siberia. He manages to escape. He's got a fascinating history. He doesn't play much of a part in the October Revolution, unlike Trotsky and Bukharin. Um, but what, what he, he does is he, he positions himself very, very cleverly, and he becomes the general secretary to the party. This allows him to fill the party entirely up with his supporters. He's in this crucial role where he can control and he can run the administration of the entire party. So he's very, very powerful. But at the same time, he's considered very dull. He's considered very mediocre, certainly in comparison with Trotsky and the brilliant Bukharin. Um, so we've got this really curious character who sort of kept himself to himself and he's made sure that he's in absolutely the right position and that he can control the amount of followers loyal to him are in the party. So there, there we've got the, the setup. <laughs> what happens next is um, quite extraordinary. And it's, it's the time where Stalin comes into himself and he reveals himself as a quite brilliant political manipulator and a plotter. And one of the reasons for his success is that he's so prepared to to shift his position. He's so prepared to make alliances and then break them, to stab people in the back. The first thing he does, uh, Lenin has his funeral. So Lenin dies as a huge state funeral. And Stalin uses this to present himself as a, a true loyal follower. Um, and Trotsky doesn't go. And he later actually claims that Stalin told him that the funeral was on the wrong date. So Stalin deliberately manipulating things to make it look like Trotsky's not interested in Lenin, that he was not loyal to him. And actually that the most loyal person, uh, the person most uh, best suited to carry on Lenin's work was Stalin. So a genius piece of political manoeuvring and stabbing Trotsky in the back there. What he then does is he forms an anti-Trotsky alliance um, with all of the other contenders. Trotsky's manoeuvred out of position. He's no longer head of the Red Army. So he's very much sidelined. What Stalin then does is he allies with Bukharin. Um, and what those two do together is to keep the other contenders out of power and particularly to keep Trotsky down. It works. Trotsky's actually expelled from Russia. 
what Stalin then does in a, in a dramatic U-turn is he he turns against Bukharin, the very man he's just formed an alliance with. A dramatic U-turn. He becomes left wing, having just established himself as a right wing. So very, very mercurial. He does this for tactical reasons, as well as uh, responding to changing situations in Russia's economy, uh, global standing. Russia's basically domestic and international position. So we've got Stalin here with a very, very keen eye to what's happening in the politics around him, but also what's happening much more broadly. Um, and Stalin ends up on top during this extraordinary power struggle. He's stabbed everyone in the back he's formed an alliance with. He's chosen the moment perfectly to, to create alliances and then to break those alliances. And at the end of it, he's also given himself a very, very clear identity within the party from being this um, grey man, someone who's very much overlooked on Lenin's death. He becomes identified as a very strong character, as a political manipulator and having very, very specific left wing ideas. And so that is how all of this ends, with all of Stalin's competitors be either sidelined or expelled, and with him in the central position of power. Oh, that was excellent, Sam. Very well explained indeed. We should do something on on the reign of Stalin as well, I think. But Ooh, I yeah, want okay. to end with, a, with an example of backstabbing, uh, which actually, because Trotsky and Stalin had fallen out, it meant that Stalin marked Trotsky as a, a man for assassination and Trotsky is forced into exile so he goes over to South America and lives in a villa in Mexico City in a, in a compound so it's thousands of miles away from Moscow high walls around it but Stalin's agents manage to get to him and they try first of all on the 24th of May 1940 and a group of them um, go over the walls and riddle uh, the compound with with bullets uh, including the door to the bedroom uh, where they thought Trotsky was um, but the attempt actually fails and it's not until several months later on the 20th of August 1940 when Trotsky is assassinated and this time, the way that they managed to do it is not by a gang of armed men, but actually by somebody who is seen by the guards who are guarding Trotsky as a family friend. And Trotsky is apparently out in his garden scattering food for his pet rabbits. His guards are there. They see a man named Frank Jackson coming in, and he'd been to the house quite a lot in recent weeks. He was the boyfriend of a confidant of Trotsky's uh, who lived in Brooklyn, in New York. So the man coming in was sort of totally innocuous. They let him in and he came along um, purportedly having written an article that he wanted Trotsky to have a look at. And so Trotsky invites him into his study. The thing that might have signalled that it's quite odd is this is... August uh, in South America and it's very hot and the man is carrying a raincoat over his left arm and as he's being taken into the study what he does is he takes out a pickaxe from his raincoat and he literally buries it 
into Trotsky's skull. Now, Trotsky is a, is a really, you know, incredibly strong man. There are tales of him and 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 Lenin wrestling when they were when they were young, much younger. So he's a really strong man. And although he is gushing with blood, uh, he manages to grapple with the attacker. Guards come in um, that he asks them not to kill him because they need to they need to hear what he has to say. Um, but day or so later dies of that. So there we are. That's quite literally uh, not not literally being stabbed in the back, but being um, <laughs> stabbed in the, in the skull. <laughs> yes. Yeah. By, by by people who were once in your party. Very good. Yes, very good. Example. Exactly. Um, I, let's let's do a little quiz to see if anyone's been listening. First up. How did the Bolsheviks manage to consolidate power after October 1917? Question two. In what year did Lenin die? Question three. What was Lenin's testament? Question four. Why was Lenin so critical of Joseph Stalin? Five. What impact did the testament actually have? And the last question, number six. How did Stalin rise to power? Wonderful stuff, guys. I hope you can answer those questions. <laughs> Question seven. How was Trotsky stabbed in the head? What with? <laughs> You've probably got that one. Um, should we have a writing task as well or some form of task for them? James? Yes, absolutely. This is another writing task. Now, you can either go back and listen to my reading of Lenin's Testament or you can Google it. I recommend Internet Modern History Sourcebook, a brilliant resource, uh, and it has a copy of it there for you uh, in, in English translation. Now, citing specific evidence from Lenin's testament, what was Lenin hoping to accomplish with this testament? So read through the testament and from your reading, what was Lenin hoping to accomplish with this testament? In other words, why was he writing it? What was his aim? Yeah. What was the big idea? Um, great stuff. I, I do love, love Lenin's Testament. It's one of my favourite historical documents. It's so surprising that he was so rude about um, all of the people who were going to succeed him. I hope you very much enjoyed this. We did so much. Um, do please follow us on social media to find out more. I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Dr. Sam Willis. And you can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, whatever, at James Daybell. And you can also follow the podcast on at unexpected pod we also have an instagram account and we have a facebook page so you can go and like us there you can also see everything that we've been up to if you are homeschooling at the moment we have a back catalog of homeschooling history episodes that you can see at historiesoftheunexpected.com that's it for now guys i very much hope you'll be back for another episode soon bye take care guys bye